All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. And right now, I'm actually on a train, on a train from New York to Washington, D.C., Myself and the Director General of the Jewish Community of Hebron, Uri Karzen, is with me, and we are heading down to the APAC conference. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee There's going to be a giant conference of 18,000 pro-Israel Jews and friends of Israel. It's going to be very exciting, and it's going to be very big, and we are heading down uh, to be part of that. And this is really also the first time that there's going to be a delegation of Jews uh, from Hebron, uh, in APAC at APAC, and I'm very excited about that because I think that the issues that Chevron represents are issues that need to be aired out at APAC, and, and sadly they're not talked about enough. There is a kind of will to uh, sweep the issues of Judea and Samaria, the quote unquote settlements, the two state solution, the Palestinian Authority, the terrorism that comes out of the Palestinian Authority, the BDS, which is focused on, the, on getting rid of Jews out of uh, Judea and Samaria. All that has to do with these issues, and yet on the docket, on the event plan of, uh, of APAC, there's not one mention of it. Everybody wants to talk about Startup Nation and all kinds of shiny, nice things that make everybody feel good, but they don't want to talk about the real policies, the real issues. And there's a person who was an intern at APAC and a friend of APAC. I'm coming down here, and Hevron is coming down here <coughs> to talk about these issues and to open them up so that we actually uh, help move the story of the Jewish people forward. We can't sweep under the rug the big issues of our time. We've got to face them head on. And speaking of head on, I'm on a train. I just want you to know I'm not in the regular car right now. I'm between cars. I didn't want to interrupt anybody with my uh, recording. So I got in between cars. And here in the between car area is also it's bouncy and it's also loud. And I hope you get to hear the sounds of the train. Uh, I love the sounds of the train. Uh, outside the window, I see rivers and I see factories right now. I'm passing a factory with smoke coming out of it. And it's kind of foggy and, and cold northeast. And it's very, very much a kind of an American story. But at the same time, uh, that American story that, uh, that I'm kind of witnessing and seeing right now, for me, is part of the story of Israel as Jews from this country are converging on Washington, D.C., on APAC, and going to be discussing the future of the Jewish people. And this component has to be there for sure. So it's a lot of fun. Now, uh, one of the great things that, uh, that I've been able to ch achieve, accomplish in my life is to be able to broadcast radio to you. Now with the landofisrael.com network, the landofisrael.com network, my email is yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Please write to me. And let's start off the show with, uh, with something that happened earlier this week as I was part of this trip. Uh, I, got to, I got to be interviewed by on the Kevin McCullough Show who's a nationally syndicated show host here in the United States, and he's broadcasting out of Manhattan. So uh, I had a chance to be in his studios, and I think, though he's not Jewish, but he's a lover of Israel, his questions and the issues that he was bringing up really do represent uh, the knowledge base, the understanding, the perspective that people here in America have. So I think that's a great way to start the show. Here's my interview with Kevin McCullough in Lower Manhattan, broadcasting to the United States, The Message of Israel. Obliterating confusion, amplifying truth, pursuing clarity. It is the uh, call of the binge thinker. That's what we do at this microphone each day. And uh, my good friend Richard Allen, who helped uh, organize the um, uh, Stop uh, Iran rallies uh, a couple of years ago, sent me a note last week. And he said, Kev, I've got a friend. 
He's the international spokesperson for the Jewish community of Hebron, and he's going to be in New York. And could he come by the studio and, and talk about what's going on in Israel, in the communities there? And I said, absolutely. So Yeshai Fleischer is sitting with me. He's the international spokesperson for the Jewish community at Hebron. You see him on CNN, Fox, all these other uh, places. Um, and he uh, makes a full-time uh, case for the uh, advocacy of the settlements and why Israel should have the right to self-govern and self-determine. And uh, now he joins me at the Kevin McCullough microphone. Uh, Yeshai, welcome. So good to have you. It's fun to be here, Kevin. Great studios. And it's uh, great to be with you, a person who's been to Israel a few times and uh, is yeah. part of the story. We were talking about that just before going on the air. But before I get to that, Fleischer, Fleischer, Fleischer. You're not related to Ari by any chance. I have met Ari Fleischer. I think he was a George Bush. He uh, was a press secretary for the president. For which president? Uh, w. For, for W. Bush, that's right. And uh, yeah, I met him. I'm not related to no him. No cousin, uh, no distant relation. Probably super distant, but uh, <laughs> not uh, not in any well, way. Well, if you go sense. back to the ark, we, we had uh, Noah. Uncle Noah right. was back there. Mount Sinai, whatever it is. But, right. uh, but he, he and I are in the same uh, kind of business. Uh, he's working. He was working for the American government, and I'm working for the renewal of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Yeah, and uh, being a spokesman of uh, of also something that's re- really not so easy, something very controversial. When when I went to Israel, one of the fun things to learn about were were the different kind of ways that people live there. So you have people that live in very traditional suburban type neighborhoods. Then you have uh, communities that uh, are that, that bump right up against. Uh, Palestinian neighborhoods, and so there's some there's some turmoil and trouble from time to time, and this is particularly in Jerusalem. Uh, you have Tel Aviv, which is kind of like the New York City of Israel. It's it's modern. It is it is like developed. It, there's business just oozing out of its uh, pores. Um, and then there's these little places called kibbutzes, which are kind of interesting out in the countryside. And then one day, I I, I got in a, a van, and my uh, tour guide took me up to. Uh, the uh, Judea Samaria region and Benjamin and uh, Samaria was where I spent most of my time uh, that that particular day, and I ate the most delicious food I've ever put in my mouth. I uh, had some really incredibly uh, good wine. Uh, it was such a uh, rich experience to see kind of this other side of what we get in the media. That is, um, you know, what the American media, the way the American media portrays Israel. But um, you get to advocate for these communities all the time. What what is life like in doing that? Well, um, on the one hand, it's it's really representing. I, I like to joke around a little bit. I say I, I represent the interests of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob internationally. <laughs> I'm their consigliere in this case. But um, the the truth is, is that one of the longest settled places on the human earth uh, is in this in these kind of parts of the land of Israel right and we have a proof that the Jewish people have been in these places for really almost 4,000 years so you know I work for Hebron and Hebron is of course mentioned in the Bible and and if I just go through it very quickly I just tell you that about 4,000 years ago Abraham buried Sarah the matriarch there and the rest of the patriarchs the matriarchs are buried there and the 3,000 uh, years ago, King David becomes a king, first in Hebron for seven years. And 2,000 years ago, a Jewish king named Herod puts a very special building there, like the Western Wall that you know, which was part of the temple complex. He put the same kind of stone around the mausoleum to m- memorialize the forefathers and mothers. And about 500 years ago, Jews that were exp- exiled from Spain uh, came back to Hebron. 
and helped to recreate that community there. And we've been living there ever since. 1929, though, there was an awful jihadist riot that murdered 67 Jews, mm. and we were evicted by the British. And in 1967, we liberated that land that was taken over by Jordan, and we come back. So, so uh, we come back and we live there, but not everybody in the world has yet accepted the legitimacy of our right to live there. So on the one hand, I'm representing something super historical, <clears throat> something incredibly legitimate, incredibly beautiful, and if you're into the Bible, it's, it's historical. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a world out there that doesn't want to see us living there. So it's not just a nice tourist attraction with wine and nice food like you talked about, which it does have, but it also is uh, uh, constantly challenged. Its legitimacy is constantly challenged. And wherever, uh, wherever they let up on the legitimacy issue, we get terrorized. Mm. Meaning to say it's always a give and take between uh, terror, jihadist terror, and even a good friend of mine was murdered about two months ago, uh, mm. right, uh, right close to the tomb of the patriarchs, the matriarchs. His name was Gennady. He was our gardener. Uh, so we're always dealing with what I call either physical terrorist jihad or narrative jihad, where, where really we're told that we were never there. Yeah. And that we have no historical connection. Well, and, and the people that make such uh, statements, all they have to do is start digging. One of the things that I f- was amazed by, that almost anywhere you go in Israel, if you just throw a shovel down, you're going to start finding history. And the way you just described it is exactly the way it's laid out. You go down and you see layer after layer after layer of civilization in every region. So there's a lot of different claims to different things. Um, 4,000 years is a pretty long-standing claim. Uh why do the families that live in the settlements currently, why are they willing to risk the safety of their kids and their families to be in that historical place? Is it that important to live on that geography? Well, if you know Jewish history, you know that we're really, uh, as a people, a kind of anti-bully people. You know, certainly, you know, King David and Goliath, uh, but Abraham, you know, broke uh, his father's idols and he was against idolatry, and he went against the grain, and as King David, like I mentioned. And we fought the Romans two times, mm-hmm. which was ridiculous. <laughs> and we fought the Romans twice uh, in, in order to secure liberty for our peoples in our land. And uh, we're just the anti-bully people, and we are in love. We are in love. We are passionate about it. It's important to us. It's, part, it's the very core of our identity. We love our uh, our history and our fathers and our mothers who, who kind of, in a sense, commanded us to hold on to these places and not let them get covered over. You talk about digging. There's two kinds of digging. You can you can dig down and you can just dig and put dirt on top. And that's what uh, some of the enemies of Israel want to do. They want to erase our history. Right. They want to cover it up. Well, and that's important to point out because when you're talking about narrative jihad and so forth, um, people that don't understand the actual um, uh, chronology of time it's been part of the Muslim faith to come to a place to build on top of it. That's a sign of, of uh, conquest. Uh, victory. Uh, we, we even, after 9-11, had people asking if they could come and build a mosque at 9-11, and it was, it was New Yorkers standing up and saying, no, that's, you're not gonna, we're not going to play that game. So I get what you're, what you're saying there. But, and I guess what it speaks to then, is you're kind of answering my question, is that uh, there's something deeper and richer than just having a comfortable house to live in or living in a nice place, there's something more meaningful about living on that spot than just the comfort that it is. 100%. 100%. It's not necessarily always comfortable, although there are some places that have become more normalized and have become comfortable, and we yearn for that. We yearn for it to become a decent and, and normal place to live. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we're going to be holding on, and we're going to be... Um, 
kind of beacons of light, witnesses to to test, testifying to the history, uh, and pushing back and not not succumbing to to terror and to bullying until such a time as uh, our neighbors, uh, Arabs, some of them succumb to jihad ideology, and and I hope that many don't, and and I believe that many will uh, realize the the truth of our claim and our cause, and really realize that the Jewish people in the land of Israel is not a bad thing. We're we're their cousins. And we have similar faiths, and and really, you know, we can live together. But they have to accept the fact that we're not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I have to tell you, Kevin, I don't, I don't want to, you know, kind of whip out this card, but we're a post-Holocaust people. We've seen a lot of uh, migration. Uh, we've we've moved around the planet, and we've always yearned to come back home. And we've come back home, yeah. so we're certainly not going to give that up at this time. Let me ask you. Uh, this is a perception that the West holds, but. Um, there's a very anti-Arab perception in Western <clears throat> media. But the truth is, Israel's a very diverse place, and Arabs hold seats in parliament. Um, they live right next door to each other in some neighborhoods in Tel Aviv and, and other places. What will it take for the settlement regions to become as tolerant of one another as what other parts of Israel are already experiencing? <clears throat> the problem is, Kevin, is that uh, we have sent a wrong signal to our interlocutors and our neighbors. We've sent them a signal that if they keep terrorizing us, they will get parcels of land from our ancestral homeland to create a state exactly where the Jewish people's whole history took place. That message, um, even though it, it came in the guise of, look, it's our land, but we're willing to give, give it up for peace, it sent a message that war against Israel will be successful. Mm. You see, Kevin, when you saw Israel and people see Israel, they see a shiny country, mm-hmm. a successful country, startup nation. The only one in the entire neighborhood, by the way, right. that is. And it looks good, and it's clean, and it's got great hospitals. I mean, very, you know, great education, great roads. It just looks like a great modern country. And so you think that it sends the signal like, we're rooted here forever. We're really rooted in this land. But the jihad sees it differently. They see that we left the Sinai in the uh, early 80s. They see that we left South Lebanon, and it's become now a place where Hezbollah uh, has taken root. They see that we left Gaza, or Aza, we say in Hebrew, but Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and now three wars in six years have been launched from that place. They, they see that we've given up some of the places in our heartland, in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, quote-unquote, right? They've, they've destroyed the tomb of Joseph. They don't let us up really pretty much to pray on the Temple Mount, our holiest place. We, we were barely making it in Hebron because they're challenging our existence so much. Uh, and so the jihad says to itself, hey, we're on a roll. Forget that shiny Israel. Don't worry about it. We're going we're gonna to sweep them away with time. And they're patient. They have a culture of patience. Uh, and we uh, have done, we've made mistakes uh, as a country, Israel, by giving the jihad an idea that indeed it will be successful in time. What we have to do is push back on that idea. And we have to basically set a psychological iron wall. We are never leaving. We're coming back. We're going to build. We're going to expand. We know this is our homeland. Your jihad, physical and narrative, is not going to be successful with us. And we have to walk away from the two-state solution. The idea that there's going to be two states living in this tiny parcel of land smaller than New Jersey, it's not going to happen. And we have uh, been fighting not only our, our interlocutors, uh, but also our own government, which had those ideas. And to we're starting degree, to shift it away. To what degree has the U.S. government been unhelpful on this? Um, let me preface by saying and let me let me say i'm not putting those words i'm not trying to put those words in your mouth it's my opinion that the us has been unhelpful in how we have 
kept Israel handcuffed at times and said, don't defend yourself and hold back and let some people live in places. It seems like we've meddled too much in what Israel needs. You know, uh, I'm an American. I became naturalized when I was a young man here. Uh, I went to law school here. Uh, I've uh, imbibed a lot of the values of America, and I'm bringing some of the things that I think are the good values of America to Israel. And I'm very appreciative and thankful to this country. And when you're here in America, just to be the kind of like to to be, in in my case, a Jew or a Chinese person or anything else, you're really given that right. And it's an incredible country. And this is an incredible city, New York City. Uh, that being said, there has been some policy uh, things that uh, the United States have been, has been pushing that have been detrimental to Israel. Mm. Detrimental. And empowering, really, this, this idea that we constantly have to have balance between the Arabs and the Jews and, and funding the Palestinian Authority, funding money that, that funds, uh, money that goes to Gaza at the end, funds Hamas, um, funding of the UN when it, when it is a blatantly anti-Semitic body, or UNESCO, which is a, a UN wing, which denies the Jewish connection to the land of Israel in so many places. Um, I have to think our Iran deal. Uh, the Iran deal. that stack. It was, it was well, that, that, one, that one wasn't bad for Israel. That one's bad for everybody. That was that was bad for world terror. So that was that was a, a horrible moment. I think a, a great disappointment that that uh, the great leader of this world, the United States, would empower one of the great evil forces in this world. So that's that's very sad indeed. Um, and also and also the non recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I think that in itself falls right into narrative jihad, meaning to say it comes right into the enemies of Israel's uh, lexicon, saying you know Jerusalem is not is not Israel. It's not Jewish. These things are unhelpful and. And what I learned, Kevin, what I learned in, in law school is that this country has within it the ability to change. It knows how to change itself. That's one of the great things about the United States. It just knows how to kind of reinvent itself, give itself kind of rebirth. And I do believe that uh, uh, many people here in the United States of America are pro-Israel, believe that Israel should be strong, and believe that it's also a uh, the first line of defense against jihad. It sends a signal that the jihad will not stand. Uh, and uh, I think that those people need to stand up right now and, and say to whoever the next president of the United States is that, that we have to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We have to move our embassy back to Jerusalem. We have to stop calling for a two-state solution. Certainly, it's not the only solution. There are other solutions, and this one's the only one that is a proven failure. So uh, th- there's policy steps that have to be taken uh, to mend our relationship, and I think that our relationship will be strong. The United States-Israel relationship will be strong, but Israel uh, cannot be a vassal state. Mm. We have to be friends. We have to be friends. We have to cooperate. But Israel's got to be given, or it has to take, um, uh, steps to ensure its own security and not follow the dictates of others who are who have interests that may not necessarily comport. I get it. If uh, people in America uh, are people of faith and they wanted to pray for Israel, what would be the what would be the thing that most Israelis would most like to see American Christians and and people of goodwill uh, seeking God's blessing for? Wow, that's a big question. Uh, and but as the emissary of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I, I will I will take that question. <laughs> um, first thing I want to I want to implore people to keep coming. 
And I think that praying is great. But, you know, the Jewish people and the Bible in general is... When you say is, keep coming, bring people Come to, to Israel. The land. Don't let like what the I've done jihad... The last three years. That's right. People don't. that have... Uh, and those of you that have been on the trip, you know it's, it's a passion to, to take people and to go there because there's something incredible about stepping foot in the Holy Land. Don't let the jihad bully you because it's exactly what they want to do. They want you to be afraid to come into Israel. And just breathing the air of the land of Israel, drinking the wine or the water of the land of Israel, it, it just it puts holiness right into your into your cellular structure. Uh, so I want you to I want you to pray for yourself to 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 be able to come to be able to afford it to to make the trip, to make the the pilgrimage. Um, and I want you not to be I, I want us to to pray really all of us to not be afraid mm-hmm. to not succumb to fear, because the tactics of the terrorists is to make us afraid, and they sometimes use our own media. Not you, but there are other media out there that are that have uh, portrayed Israel as a dangerous place and a scary place, and then as portrayed Israel as a bad country when it's like the only country of light and hope in the whole region. And so, well, and that statement is one of the reasons why. And and I haven't endorsed anybody in the presidential race, but I I'm very put <clears> off <throat> when I hear a candidate say, "Well, there's no real difference between uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis. We just have to we have to be a neutral referee." I, I don't think the U.S. can afford to be that. I think we have to take a side, and I think the U.S.'s moral obligation is to side with Israel. Um, it's a moral, economic, uh, legal, uh, historical. There's so many connection points. Um, I, I, I think, I think that a strong Israel will lead to a safer, more stable Middle East. I agree. I, I think that that when you vote for Israel or support Israel, you're actually going to be supporting the Arab countries as well. You're going to be supporting stability. Uh, th- that region is unstable. And any, f- any force that adds fire to jihadism, as this Iran did, deal did, yeah. uh, it destabilizes the region. And, it, and it, you have to know that the jihad isn't anti-Israel. It's first, and mo- first and foremost, it's anti-tolerant and decent Arabs. They will destroy their own. And that's what's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, there's 500,000 people dead in Syria. The official number is two hundred fifty thousand. That's a, that's a, that's not the truth. There's millions who are displaced right now. Uh, the jihad is a tr- is a horrible, uh, inhuman, supremacist ideology. It's not just supremacist against Jews. It's certainly supremacist against Christians, but also these kind of Arabs and these kind of Muslims. And it, it's a horrible mess out there. There's only one country that has any vision at all of freedom of democracy, of liberty, of market economics, of, of education, of clean water, of women's rights, of upward mobility. Uh, Israel will help that region flourish, but it needs to be the strong power in that region. And I also call to my own people, the Jewish people, and also the Israeli leadership to take up that mantle of being a regional power. Don't, you know, we can't be Woody Allen forever in that region. We mm. can't be, oh, oh, I don't know. We got to be proud of that. We got to be strong about being, we got to be proud of being strong. We got to assert sovereignty in our ancestral homeland, and that will bring stability to our region. Yeshai Fleischer, thanks for being with us. Kevin, you're the best. Thanks so much. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yeshai Fleischer Show, and I am right now on a train from New York City to Washington, D.C., and we're heading down to the APAC conference. The Jewish community of Hebron is going to represent at this conference, which was really dominated by Jews who would identify themselves as liberal. A lot of them don't, haven't wanted to discuss the issues of the Jewish rights to Judea and Samaria, and especially Hebron. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Kevin McCullough, uh, broadcasting to 1,200 stations. 
That was earlier this week. And right now I'm an, on the Amtrak train heading down to Washington, D.C. to bring those messages uh, to uh, fellow Jews and lovers of Israel in the United States' capital. So there's going to be a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of interests, and a lot of policy that's going to be discussed down at APAC. And people are walking past me as I'm standing here in the between cars <laughs> recording radio, and they're just wondering, what is this dude all about? But they can probably guess from my attire that it's about Israel and the Jewish people. And uh, we're making an impact here. Now, uh, earlier last week before I left Israel, I had a chance to talk with a guy named Lev Israel about a very important project to put uh, Judaism, the Torah, online so that anybody who's searching for sources can connect to the story of Judaism. You see, folks... I'm a switch hitter, right? We're talking about two issues that are really that are really one, which is Israel's the right of Israel to exist, the Jewish people's right to live in the land of Israel, and it's the right to see Judaism flourish and Torah flourish. So the second part of the program today is an interview with Lev Israel, who is helping this incredible project called Safaria take off, which is the app that the world has been waiting for, making Torah and Torah sources accessible to the world. So from the train, somewhere between New York and Washington, actually somewhere past Philadelphia already, uh, this is the Ishai Fleischer Show on the Land of Israel Network, thelandofisrael.com. I am the international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron. That's my day job, as well as being a show host here. I want to hear from you. My email is yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Or, you know, don't write to me at ishaidamtrak.com. Uh, I'm just a passenger, ishaidthelandofisrael.com. And we're all passengers in this incredible world. we got to make the most of it while we can. So here is Lev Israel with the incredible project of Safaria. It was a few years ago that I was in Teaneck, New Jersey, and I was, um, my good buddy Ezra was making breakfast, breakfast for me. I was on a, a tour of America, some kind of speaking tour, and I was going to do media that day, and I remember that he was making eggs for me, because he's my buddy like that, and uh, we were just having a great time, and I remember it very well because he started talking to me about a concept that I never had heard of before in my life. He said, why should Torah be limited to, to uh, Torah knowledge? shouldn't be kind of flowing on the internet that you could find it any way you want to. Why is it limited to commercial products? If you wanted to research, everybody knows that there's the famous Barilan project uh, uh, a compendium of knowledge of Torah sources. And if you want, you spend a few hundred dollars and you get that program. And then you can research all the various opinions, ideas, commentators, and Torah sources from antiquity till today. Why should that cost money? Don't we live in the internet age where knowledge is, is free, shouldn't Torah, which is the ultimate godly knowledge uh, uh, and, and the incredible wisdom of the Jewish people throughout the generations, be open for people to, to delve into and research and not just for the few who can't afford it, who know where to find it. It should be online. It should be easy to reach. And when he said this to me, I, I was like, I had never even, I never even conceived of that problem. I remember thinking to myself, I never even like, I was like, oh, wow, that is a problem that I didn't even think of. And I thought to myself, well, that would be a, a big project. And he said to me back then, he said, listen, there's a few smart people starting to get together uh, around the project, which is tentatively called uh, Safaria. And he said to me, Safaria from the word book, 
uh, sefer is, is the, the Hebrew word for book, and he said they're getting together and they're starting to create some kind of site, app, software in order to open this stuff up. Well, I thought to myself, that'll be the day. Uh, it, it sounds quite uh, uh, hard to do, and, and you know, Jewish people are busy with other things. You know, who's going to put their time and energy uh, into creating this? Well, lo and behold, just the other day, I was uh, listening to a, a rabbi give a class, and he, and he handed out source sheets. And the source sheets were so crisp and had lined up sources on left and right in the Hebrew and the English from various sources. And at the bottom it said, created, source sheet created at Sepharia, Safaria. And I, uh, I already am familiar with this uh, site and this app and, 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 and this, this product in general, but I already saw that it had entered the mainstream market, this incredibly successful compendium uh, of Torah sources. And I have with us, with me, we have with us uh, on our show today, Lev Israel, who is a software architect for Safaria, which is this online compendium. And, and I, I'm very happy to have you, Lev. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here, Yishai. And uh, th- this is a project of a, of a grand scope. You're a full-time employee uh, of, of this project to create kind of a, a Wikipedia of sorts and more than some for Torah sources. Tell me about how that idea came about. It's a, it's a good question. Um, it was really a labor of love. The, um, the, it was founded by two friends, two friends who had come to, come to Israel, uh, had, had met each other as Bromfman Fellows a bunch of years back. Uh, one, Brett Lockspizer, went on to work at Google, and the other, Josh Foyer, um, became a, um, a New York Times bestselling author, wrote a, wrote a book called Moonwalking with Einstein. And the two of them were looking at a looking at a page of Talmud at one point, or talking to each other about the page of Talmud, and saying, "Okay, this it's obvious to anyone who knows technology that the Talmud is hyperlinked. That there, you look at the Talmud page, there are links everywhere. There are links to Tanakh, there are links to the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch, and links to different pages on the Talmud. And it just it feels like a network consciousness that was." frozen in a book form, but really the consciousness is much broader than that. Lev, let me, let me pause you for a second. Uh, the, the, for, for those who don't understand, the, the page of Talmud, every page of Talmud has the original Talmud on it, and all around it has commentary, and actually various commentaries that actually will tell you where related concepts, sources will exist, either in the Bible or other parts of the Talmud, or in the halachic, the Jewish law system, the Jew, Jewish legal system, and that's what you mean by hyperlinked. It was already an idea of you're going to get through all these tomes by understanding the relationship uh, between this particular phrase and a different one. Yeah, yeah. So with this idea, the idea that the that the Talmud, the Torah, is hyperlinked, they um, it became a labor of love. Brett said, "You know what? Let me build it. Let me build a prototype. See how it looks." Josh was moral support. Helped, I think, also raise a little bit of money for him. And for about a year, it was really just the two of them laboring alone. Um, I, uh, I encountered him in it. He was demoing at, at, uh, the first demo, I think in New York city at Hadar, I went and saw the, saw the demo, um, became user number 28, uh, and volunteered with the project. Saw it, saw it, really enjoyed it, saw that there was a lot of potential to it. And then maybe a year later, I came on as a, as a full-time employee. Um, I was user 28. At this point, we've got tens of thousands of unique users a month. So there's a, a pretty significant scale and upwards of 50 million words in the system. It's worth underscoring. And I think it's very important to say that everything on the site is free, entirely free, free as in beer and free as in speech. 
Free is in beer, meaning you don't pay anything for it. Free is in speech, meaning there's no legal restrictions on it. You can take and use anything you find on our site for whatever purposes. So it's really a, a change in the way that that Torah, that these words are are given to people, are provisioned to people. You you don't have to go out and buy them and buy them and sell them. You can use them. They're uh, cultural property. So so these are big phrases that you're making. Your cultural property means to say now it's open. It's basically, to use a kind of catchphrase, it's an open source Torah compendium. Yeah. Um, but but creating Torah is also something that is expensive. It takes, for example, at Art Scroll, uh, where they've made another incredible product for so many of us. Myself, just this morning, early this morning, studying the Talmud. If it wasn't for the Schottenstein Talmud, which has in it tremendous notes that scholars have written to explain to you, just translations and also all of these hyperlinks on the book, they have they have sat, they have written, they have published, and and I purchased and my synagogue purchased these things in order to pay back for those efforts that we so desperately need. Uh, one of the great challenges of modernity, and I could tell you also as a media person who has worked for many newspapers um, and for media outlets, there's a tremendous challenge in that the concept of the internet is that it's free. And you're creating basically royalty-free Torah. Well, you know, uh, on the one hand, I can walk into any synagogue and open up a chumash and there's royalty-free knowledge right there. But, but is that going to uh, disincentivize the next Torah scholar from writing a book, if he'll know that soon enough, like just like in the music industry, it's hard to keep those, you know, kind of songs being paid for. So instead now artists have to go out and tour to make their money. Like where is there a problem somewhere in, in this idea of opening the Torah out to everybody? See, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I want to turn it around a little bit in that you you brought the example of the Schottenstein Talmud. Right. So the, the Schottenstein family paid for the publication of that Talmud. The Talmud was not paid for uh, entirely by its sales, by the projected sales, by the thought that you know, we would sell X, X number of copies and therefore we can pay for all this research. Really, the Schottenstein family paid for the bulk of the cost of producing that Talmud. So then the question is, is it right for someone to start uh, taking tzedakah money, taking charity money, producing Torah resource? and then treating it as a good that they could sell. So you hear the, you hear the question I'm asking, right? Now, I, that's not to discount the question you asked. There's, there are, there, there's economics to consider. There's a way that... that um, but you're not putting the, the Schoenstein Talmud up. You're not going to be putting that source up unless you have we, permission to do that. Uh, of course. We're, we're, we're excruciatingly careful about rights. There are even sources where if we were really adventurous legally, we would put them up and let, and let someone come and try and claim that we've done something wrong. We don't even, we don't even do that. So if, if things already passed into the public domain, is that how it works? Right. So the things passing into the public domain, unfortunately, is very, it's stuck. In America, it's stuck. Every other country in the world, it's either 50 years after the death of the author or 70 years after the death of the author. In America, it's 1923. Nothing since 1923 is entering the public domain. And the biggest reason for that is Disney and companies like Disney because they own Mickey Mouse. They make a heck of a lot of money from Mickey Mouse. They don't want anyone else using Mickey Mouse without them getting the royalties from it. So as things happen in America, they encourage the politicians to freeze copy. So copyright hasn't moved in America, but there's 
most, a huge, huge world of Torah that's published before 1923. And that's a lot of what we're focused on. We, we have a certain advantage in that the bulk of what we want to be publishing has already, has, was already in the world before that magic year. Right. So I don't want to get too far into the nitty gritty uh, of, the, of, the te- of the kind of legal aspect of it, because I want to explain to people also the user experience. Basically, sure. you're going to go to this site and you're going to look up a, a verse in the Torah and you're going to want more uh, uh, references to it in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, in the Midrash. This is, this is a really tough one. Finding the sources in the Midrash is just really tough because there's many Midrashic uh, volumes and, and, and tomes and, and to find exactly that verse um, you're going to get that with, with a few clicks of a button, you're going to get through uh, Safari, and it's .org or .com? Which one do we .org. .org. That's interesting, by the way, about itself. It's an org. Is it an organization? Yeah, it's a nonprofit organization, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're going you're gonna to be able to kind of cross-reference all of those, all of those things, and you're going to be able to also move them to a source sheet, right? How often is somebody going to be using a source sheet uh, when he gets to uh, Safari, is he going to use it just as a resource to find a piece of information, or is he going to use it as a teaching tool as well? So there's there's a few different levels. You can go to the Safari site and see, explore, read, uh, and a lot of that is the links, like you were saying. You go to the first verse of the Torah, Bereshit Bara, and you can see the hundreds of places where that has found expression in in the Midrash, in Halakha, in Hasidut, uh, and bounce from one to the other very fluidly and see where read both in Hebrew and where we can in English translation, see what the connections are, what people have said. Um, and then the source sheets are tools for tools for teachers. So one of the things that teachers are often doing is taking a collection of sources, ordering them, giving their explanation. We have um, among others, this a tool for teachers of building, uh, building source sheets, a way to easily build, publish, share, collaborate on source sheets. And I, I got to tell you something. Uh, before uh, Safari came came on the scene, I was actually going to a Christian Bible site to find the verses and the translations in a good way. Okay, it had the whole Bible and it had also the quote unquote New Testament, uh, the Christian texts mm-hmm. uh, in it. And and uh, now I have a, a site I think that I find to be kind of more Jewish. It's Jewish oriented. Uh, at the same time, uh, the, the definition of what Jewish is is not just classical Orthodox. It's kind of a broad definition. Is that right? Yeah, we, we don't necessarily uh, censor what we, we put up a, sources. We see ourselves more as a library. So there's a, the, by far and away, most of what we put up is something that, that an Orthodox user would go to and be, and be excited by. There's a couple things that might uh, raise, raise their antennas. But again, we see ourselves as a library. You don't have to take it off the shelf. Right. Okay, very good. But what, what else you can take off the shelf is not just the sources. Not just the kind of hundreds of sources that come together and are easily turned into a source sheet or a piece of knowledge that you don't have to go to the, the actual library. You could just do it from your desk like Wikipedia. You know, that knowledge is right there. Also, you've actually allowed the very software itself to be somehow open to others. This is something that I don't quite understand. You, you started telling me before the program that, 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 that people can take uh, the software you've built and build things upon that. What does that even mean? Right, so... The, the software is open source, which means that we don't we put all of the code online. It's what I wrote this morning is is online already, meaning you can go and get the very latest. What did version. you write this morning? Uh, what did I write this morning? Like, what does that mean? What, uh, what did, honestly, I saw that some of our Hebrew text was misaligned, and I I just had it centered in its in its window better. 
That was right. what I did this morning. That's what coders do. That's what coders do. It, the bigger piece I'm working on through the week is uh, is letting people filter filter sources by topic on their when they access the site by by phone. Um, little things, you smartphone. know, it takes a smartphone. It takes a lot of a lot of work to to get all the details right. We focus a lot on design. And, and maybe just another parenthesis, very quickly, and let you get back to your answer. W- one of the things that I think stands out immediately is that it's a classy operation. It's, a, it's, it's classy. The fonts are nice. There's a kind of Mackian uh, uh, kind of feel to it. You know, it, it's, it, you could tell right from the, from the start that it's, it's, it's intended to be a, a full-service, classy operation, not just nuts and bolts, but nuts and bolts with design and beautiful fonts and all that. You know, if you ever listen to, um, to Steve Jobs' talk, he's always talking about the fonts. And, and fonts is, and then the look of it yep. is also something. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. We we spend a lot of time thinking about design. Um, I think it's extremely important. And uh, maybe as an example, maybe as an example of that, th- we've been around for maybe four or five years. We're already working on a, f- a first overhaul of the design. And this time, we're going mobile first, meaning we're making sure it works perfectly on the phone. And then, and then moving to desktop, and that's where we see it going. You know, so people can, you know, look up a, look up a source on their phone, read on the phone, and it's clean and clear and and usable. Okay, and I and I cut you off before when we were talking right. about open source. You, you started telling me that that kids in Teaneck uh, were were going to use it for something else, kind of use the platform and, and and create something new upon it. Right. So this is there. There's a there's a shift in in thinking here. We all of the text on the site is entirely free and open. You can download the whole database. You can take a book wow. and republish it. All of it is free. And we make it easy for people to do that. And the software that runs the site, you can also take and use. Um, we, we don't yet have another organization grabbing the software and using it for something, but we would love it. Meaning someone who wants to launch a site around Shakespeare or around James Joyce or around you know, medieval Christian poetry or Islamic law or what have you, we would be happy to help them grab our software and use it for their purposes. And we, um, the licensing that we commit to, the fact that our software is legally has to be in the public domain and all of our content legally has to be in the public domain makes it really easy for people to support us financially. Meaning it's clear that what we're doing is creating a resource for the community, creating something that will, that will be um, uh, the property of the community. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't lock this up if we wanted to, we've already made the legal commitments that keep us from locking it up. Right. But still though, uh, you're talking about potential Shakespearean usage of of, uh, of the software. At the end of the day, though, you are putting Torah online uh, for people to use. And, and yeah, there's one page, that's what we're doing. Right, that's what you're doing. And there's one page in, in, in the system, the Sephora system. By the way, how, how would people spell it? Is it a P-H? Is it an F? S-E-F-A-R-I-A dot O-R-G. Dot O-R-G. Um, and I'm a user also. Um, there's one page, which is a very beautiful page, which has basically... The verses in the Bible, um, yep. connect, connected by lines to places in the Talmud that it, that they're mentioned and discussed, and it's a kind of cascade. Yeah, it's this beautiful. It looks like a rain shower. It looks like a kind of like a like it looks like a force of nature, uh, showing the connection between the 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 Torah uh, and and the Talmud. And you said to me a phrase before the show. You said beautiful things can happen when Torah becomes data. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it, it's true. And, and that's something that even, um, even though some of these things you could get to on computer before, because they weren't open, you could only do with them exactly what the people who published them wanted you to do with them. Meaning Barlan has amazing, amazing data and amazing search, but you couldn't ask a question like, what pattern do all of the connections between Tanakh and Talmud make? Whereas because what we have is data, you can do all sorts of interesting visualizations, you can look for patterns, you can run machine learning algorithms over it, you can look for natural language patterns, you can any any things I can't even think of because it's data, you can grab it and use it. So a good example is that data visualization, which you could see by going to our site, looking at the menu and going to Link Explorer. Um, you know, if the if the if the description didn't quite paint the picture in your mind. Um and you can do I think a good example, this kid from TNEC, a ninth grader from TNEC was practicing for the um Chidon Tanakh, the uh Tanakh quiz that happens, the, the Bible quiz. Uh, so he, using using our software, using our API, he wrote himself a little game which popped up a verse and he had to guess what book it came from. Wow. So he got, he could do that because the data was open. Um, he and his brother uh, got together and created a plugin for Google Docs. Two other kids from, or young young men from Cooper Union in their junior course, junior year course on databases created an Android app based on our data. They didn't ask our permission they asked our help and we were happy to give it, but they had they, they didn't have to ask our permission. And the app that they created was so awesome, we actually ended up hiring them and buying the app from them and, and we're developing it as our own Android app. Right. Well, I wanted to say that because you recently released uh, an iOS app uh, for, uh, for the iPhone and for the Mac. I, I, that's what I, at least I got an email about that. At least that's what I understood. And I was like, wait, what about Android? I'm an Android user. Is that coming out? Is yep. that is that here? Yep. So we're, they, they leapfrog each other. Each one, each one takes a step. So the, right now, the Android app is in beta. Um, so you can sign up to be a beta, a beta tester of the Android app. Um, and, uh, and the iOS app, we had some third parties publish an iOS app. Uh, we we think that's great. We're happy with it. The one we're developing in house should be in beta in another month or two. All right, this is amazing stuff, and and I, I really think uh, uh, Lev Israel, you're a software architect for Sepharia, an online compendium of Torah sources. Uh, I do think that that in a, in a sense, the Torah has found a natural environment for itself. Uh, as you started telling the tale of how it came about, uh, in, in in a sense, Torah has th- it has these qualities. That fit the um, the web environment, the the, the data environment. Um, it just it has a kind of a fourth dimensional aspect to it uh, that that you could be you could see it not yeah. only going left to right, but also you know frontwards and backwards and kind of through time, and and that's happening right now. Now all our descriptions are not the easiest things to to discuss. This is this is like uh, you know trying to describe uh, any app that you use. You you kind of have to just experience it, and I, I I highly recommend you go check it out. And you will be um, you you will you will be grateful to me because uh, this is just a, a new way to connect to the Bible. It's got Hebrew, it's got English. It'll probably have more languages soon as well. Yep. And uh, it, it's a gift to to the world uh, for for what God has given us a gift, which is the internet and the knowledge. And we all know how much schmutz and garbage and stupid things there are on the internet, but it's also an incredible tool, an incredible gift. And now Sepharia is going to bring Torah. Uh, into that environment. So, Alev uh, Israel, I want to thank you so much. Thank you, Shai. Appreciate it. All right, it. folks. Uh, great stuff. Great. Let's do that again. All right. Uh, le- uh, so, um, Lev Israel, I, I, 
Lev, I want to thank you so much for your good work at Safaria. And the website is S-E-F-A-R-I-A dot O-R-G, right? That's right. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed this discussion, and I hope you indeed visit uh, the website and let me know if you're using it, uh, because that means that you're going to be inside the world of Torah. Torah turned into data. Lev, thanks again. Thank you, Yishai. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Lev Israel about Safaria, this incredible app that is opening Torah up to the world, letting you uh, access Torah sources at a touch of a finger. To remind you, right now you are hearing the sounds of a train. I'm on the train to somewhere from New York to Washington, D.C., heading down to APAC. And the next show of the Ishai Fleischer Show will feature sounds from APAC. I'm very excited to bring them to you. On today's show, we had Kevin McDonough, who interviewed me uh, on his show, The Kevin McDonough Show, which is uh, broadcast to 1,200 stations uh, nationally here in the United States. And then you heard from Lev Israel, who's broadcasting the Torah internationally. And you're hearing me now on the train. So I want you to wish me a lot of luck and, and, and make a, give me a little prayer. Ishai, say, God, please help Ishai and Uri, the Director General of Hebron, be successful on this tour and on this mission to bring the message of Hebron and the forefathers and mothers to the rest of the Jews, some of whom may have forgotten our eternal connection and bond to our fathers and mothers and our homeland and thereby connecting to God. We have to strengthen that connection, and that's why we're on this train. The train is really the train of Jewish history, and it's an honor to be broadcasting to you as well on thelandofisrael.com. Write me an email, yeshai at thelandofisrael.com. Stay tuned, folks. Stay connected. And get on the rail. Get on the rail of history to be part of Jewish history, to be part of world history as the Jewish people are uh, taking, taking a path back home after 2,000 years of wandering, 2,000 years of teaching and learning. We have been all around the world and now we're coming back and that message is also coming to the Jews of Hebron, of, of the United States, who have may, may have forgotten our connection to Hebron. We're going to give them that connection. We're going to give them that connection to, of course, Jerusalem, as we all take the trail, the path, the rail, up to Jerusalem to serve God in the third temple. And it's going to be an amazing thing. Write me an email, yeshaitalandofisrael.com. Stay tuned, stay strong, and stay connected. And shalom.